Open your Bibles this evening to Esther, Esther chapter 1, where we'll continue where we ended this morning. <coughs> Esther chapter 1. Obviously, I didn't say finish. We'll continue. There are some things in chapter 1 that many times you might read it and not even think it's germane to a discussion of the book, but it opens up some things that I believe are proper, appropriate, and needed by the Lord's people. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, our trust is in Thee. Open now our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might see, hear, and understand. We thank Thee for Thy Word. We believe that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. Now help us learn. We're going to give the best effort that we can. We shall play ourselves for our God and for our children. Bless the effort now that it will be to the benefit of each of Thy saints. Through Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. So far, in Esther chapter 1, we've had an identification made in verse 1 of the king Ahasuerus, and the Holy Spirit identifies him as by saying, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over in 107 and 20 provinces. And then in verse 2, we, say, we see that he lived and reigned in the palace in Shushan. And then we read in verse 3 down through verse 9 that he held a great feast that lasted 187 days. Now that's quite a feast, isn't it? And Vashti the queen entertained the women in the house of the palace of Ahasuerus while he entertained the men out in the courtyard of the gardens. And we saw the beauty of the palace they had there in Shushan. We also saw in verse 7 that there was an abundant amount of royal wine according to the state of a king who always has plenty for his guests. But in verse 8 we noticed that the Persian government at this stage of their existence had a law that no man would be compelled to drink. That if you were satisfied, you wouldn't have to drink anymore. If a toast was made, you could be exempt from that toast. And you wouldn't be talked into a state of drunkenness. We notice that in the 8th verse. In verses 10 through 12, we had a record made of the domestic problems between Ahasuerus and Vashti. Not problems, a problem. Ahasuerus, it says in verse 10, when his heart was merry with wine, commanded his seven chamberlains to go get Vashti and bring her before the king and all the princes with her crown on, so that they could behold her beauty. But she refused to come, according to verse 12. And it says that the king was very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now let's deal with a few more things in these three verses. This morning we dealt with the fact that when it says the heart of the king was merry with wine, doesn't necessarily mean that he was drunken with wine. And in fact, based on God's blessing upon Ahasuerus, no condemnation in the context. Other men in Scripture who were merry with wine who did not sin, the fact that God made wine to make merry the heart of man, 
and the fact that other events here don't describe a drunkard. For those reasons, I will make an effort to exonerate King Ahasuerus and not condemn him straight out of the blocks, like most any commentator you wish to read. Now, in verse 11, we have his motive. He wanted to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Now, we dealt with the wine issue this morning, the drinking wine for cheer is exactly why God designed the beverage. That's why you're to drink wine. It's for the cheer that it gives. And those of you who enjoy a glass of wine from time to time understand exactly what that cheer is, don't you? You understand what it means when it says, forget your misery and remember your poverty no more. It takes away some of your worries. It causes you to relax. You know a big meal does the same thing to most of us. What happens after a big meal if you don't have something stimulating going on? You're probably going to zonk out. You forget things. It relaxes your body as all your blood rushes down to digest that food and leaves your brain. And unless you've got something stimulating going on, I'm not stimulating enough, huh? If you don't have something stimulating going on, you have a tendency to fall asleep even with a big meal, let alone the wine. Now, God designed the wine to save the calories and the expense and the time. You can drink a little wine and get the same effect. And most people have told me, I don't like the stuff myself, so my experience is limited, as most of you know, that it does promote a sleepy feeling and that before bedtime, a glass of wine can certainly help you go to sleep. Now, you may be bothered with problems, but that glass of wine will put you to sleep, won't it? That's what it's for. And we should use it that way as we studied this morning. And if you want more work on that, you know I've preached two whole sermons on the Christian alcohol. Now, the next point I want to make is from this 11th verse. Some are very quick to condemn Ahasuerus for asking Vashti to come and parade, whatever that word means, her beauty before these princes. Ahasuerus had been showing the glory of his kingdom for 180 days. He brought out his Persian rugs that were hanging. He had his marble. He had royal wine in abundance. He had wine goblets that were all diverse, one from another. He had been showing off things that showed the glory of his kingdom for 180 days. And what is one of the principal things of a kingdom that is usually shown off? The glory of the queen. Do they still do that in England? Doesn't the nation call for the queen to come forth at specified dates and show off her glory. Now, she may not be the fairest woman in the world to look upon. I mean, I'm not trying to draw a perfect analogy there. But the fact that she comes forth, does she parade herself? Does she have her royal crown on? Yes, indeed. And she's shown on television, millions throng the streets of London to see the queen. There's nothing at all unusual about that. Isn't there a great deal of discussion every time we elect a new president 
on how his wife will be received by the public, how well she dresses, how she looks in public. Not a thing in the world unusual about that. We do it all the time. And like I said this morning, for those of you who want to be hasty in judging Ahasuerus, none of you asked your wives to come this morning looking poorly. You expected them to make a few changes from when you saw them the first thing this morning before they got here. That's, you don't even think about it. It's so natural and it makes so much common sense. The point, here's the point I'm going after to make it easy for you to understand. A woman who wants to appear attractive in public before others, and that includes other men, and men who look at her and admire her beauty have not necessarily sinned. And that's the point I want to establish. We looked at Genesis chapter 12 this morning, where Abraham took Sarah, who was a very beautiful woman, and who's an example of a godly woman down into Egypt. He said, I know you're a good-looking woman, and that when the Egyptians see you, they're going to want you for their, one of their wives, and they're going to kill me to get you because they're going to think I'm your husband. I mean, that's the way you operated back in those days in Egypt. I mean, that's the a nation of darkness and ignorance of God's law. And so Abraham asked her to say that she was his sister so that he could preserve his life. And we read that as soon as she got down there, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. Now, how could they behold her if she was dressed like some of the Puritans would have us dress? What beauty would you behold? The strength of her bustle? What beauty would there be to behold? This woman, who was a godly woman and her husband was the friend of God, had a wife that dressed in such a way that she could still be referenced in the New Testament as an example of a Christian woman. And yet, other men are going to see that she's attractive. Friend, what I'm saying is this. They didn't wear a cape over their heads. You couldn't see their hair. They didn't have a lampshade on from their neck to the ground with a veil over their face. Would you tell me what would be the difference between, you know, Susie the Ugly Duckling and Sarah if they both dressed that way? You wouldn't know. But the whole problem was Abraham knew they would know before they got there, and as soon as they got there, they did know. And the next time he tried it with Abimelech, Abimelech took Sarah to be his wife. You can read about that in Genesis 24. But let's go to Genesis chapter 26. Now, will we give Rebecca credit for being a godly woman? Genesis chapter 26. Now, Isaac dwelt in Gerar. We read in verse 6. And the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, She is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. Rebecca was a beautiful woman, and Isaac, Abraham's son, got into the same trouble his dad did. He married a beautiful woman. And in those days, you ran the risk of getting your head cut off for your wife. But here's Isaac, same problem. My whole point is this. I'm not saying we ought to, you know, women ought to uh, come into public showing as much as they can. 
I'm saying godly women have shown enough that they're recognized as women and they're recognized as beautiful women. So that when we look at Esther 1, we don't jump to the hasty conclusion that something is wicked that's transpiring in verse 11. Men ought to be proud of the way their wives look and hope that they look attractive and not dowdy. Dowdy means to dress shabbily or not to take any attention or care to the way you dress. And you know, there's, there's groups of people who think that way. You know, if you go look at the Puritans, they ran to an excess that way. I won't say they didn't have some things over us. I'll just say they ran to an excess that way. And for those of you who know about that part of the lives of the Puritans, you know full well what I'm talking about. Let's look at Genesis chapter 29. 29 this time. Genesis 29 and verse 17. We read this. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. What does it mean when it says a woman is, was well-favored? I'll leave that with your own imaginations. Listen, friends, who made the woman? God did. He favors women, and he also makes them beautiful. And he, makes, he made Leah tender-eyed, but Rachel had it hands down over Leah. I mean, Jacob was the most disappointed groom you ever saw when he woke up the morning after and looked into those tender eyes and realized he didn't have the beauty queen. And he got her, didn't he? That's who he wanted was Rachel because she was beautiful and well-favored. Why'd the Bible tell us that? Why'd we need to know that? You ever wonder about those things? Why'd the Holy Spirit say that? for what I'm preaching right now. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. Now here's a woman we know was godly. It says she was a woman of good understanding. Do you know her name? When I say 1 Samuel 25, there's only one woman in the chapter. Abigail, the wife of Nabal, who became the wife of David. And it says in verse 3, Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Abigail was a beautiful woman. She had a beautiful countenance. When you looked at Abigail, you said, there is one fine-looking woman. Have you sinned in doing that? That's what we want to answer tonight. And I hope that it's a practical point that will help you who have been burdened by false teaching in the past or untaught consciences. And yet, at the same time, I will draw a very definite line that you cannot come over. But let's see if we can't walk that road again, as we do with alcohol, relative to women. Ruth took pains, did she not, in Ruth chapter 3, to take a bath, anoint herself, and put on a garment. What kind of a garment do you think it was? Was it a work garment? Or was it the most attractive garment she had? Do we need to speculate, or do we know? We know what it was. Naomi was trying to make her as attractive as possible for Boaz. But there were going to be other men there, and she wasn't even married to Boaz. 
Women should be all that they possibly can be, and I'm talking about physical attractiveness, for the glory of God and for a testimony. God made the woman distinctly beautiful in her own way, and she ought to be dressed attractively and not be ashamed of that, but to do everything to the glory of God. God gave the woman beautiful features, beautiful hair, long hair. That hair is to be her glory and her covering. It ought not. It doesn't need to be covered and wrapped up and put in a bun on heads. Let it show. God made that to be seen and appreciated. And being attractive while maintaining sobriety, shamefacedness, and modesty is a testimony against the world who say we can't do it. That we're just a bunch of dowdy, you know, shabbily dressed, no, we don't take any care to look beautiful, and we run our women down. A woman ought to look attractive, and yet at the same time be sober, be shamefaced, and be modest. But she can do all four. Have you ever seen women who could do all four? Now listen, Queen Elizabeth is not a Rachel. We all know that. But Queen Elizabeth knows how to dress and appear attractive and sober and shamefaced and modest, doesn't she? She has two daughter-in-laws, Ferguson, whatever her name is, and Diane, she's no lady, lewd and immodest. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, go get another recent Newsweek and read about their antics. They stink. Yes, a Lady Diane has a beautiful countenance, but she doesn't know how to behave in public. She doesn't know how to dress modestly. She was worn some of the most immodest clothing when she knew she was going to be on public television. Her mother would mother-in-law would never do that. There's a big difference there. And yet Queen Elizabeth, when she's seen in public, is respected for looking attractive. The first ladies that this country has had have, for the most part, been sober, shamefaced, and modest in their public appearances, and yet looked as attractive as they possibly could. Do you remember Pat Nixon? I mean, who could accuse her of being immodest? Who could accuse her of not being sober? Who could accuse her of not being shamefaced around her husband, just standing there smiling sweetly while he led the affairs of our nation? Now, there's some others that I won't praise quite as highly that we've had in recent years, but Pat Nixon did a fine job. Where in the Word of God can you show me that a man has sinned who's proud of his wife looking attractive in public? Don't you all want your wives to look attractive? I didn't say attract lust. I said attractive. And you know, it's that Pharisee bent that wants to run to that all the time. Now let's deal with men looking at beautiful women as the Bible describes. We have examples here of beautiful women described who we are told expressly, with Abigail in the same verse, was a godly woman but was of a beautiful countenance. Now, why did the Holy Spirit make reference to that fact? Unless 
It is a practice of man and of God himself to recognize the fact, even by men who aren't married to the woman. I mean, do we not recognize a woman who's gifted intellectually? Do we not recognize a woman who is gifted with her hands? Don't we recognize those gifts that God gives? Where is the sin in recognizing the beauty that God can also give? Man may admire a beautiful woman as righteously as they admire a wise woman. Men may admire a beautiful woman as righteously as they admire a new house. Men may admire a beautiful woman as righteously as they would admire a new car. I wouldn't say the level of risk is equal for most of us. Give me the cars, right, men? But that doesn't mean we ignore that and beat ourselves for those thoughts that enter our minds, such as, now there goes a beautiful woman. Now I'm speaking very plainly tonight, and if you can't take plain preaching, then we've got problems. But I'm not going to change. I know what men's consciences deal with. And when you see a beautiful woman, and you think, well, there goes a beautiful woman, and I don't care if you think that woman is well-favored. You know what? You've done nothing more than the Word of God has done. And I don't even need to ask you men if you've ever done that. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. And I want to show a few things. First of all, please in your mind draw a distinction between the word admire and desire. Are those two words the same thing? Admire and desire. Now, admire is recognizing a given fact. Desire is saying, I want it to be mine. And there's a great big difference. It's not even a fine line. It's a gigantic difference. But what I want to do is completely exonerate men who admire and then condemn men who desire. But there's a great big difference between those two. One is righteous, and one is very unrighteous. But before, as we do that, I also want to show you that lawful desire is something commended in Scripture, not condemned. For David Kruger to see a beautiful-looking woman and think to himself, poor David, you understand why I'm using you, brother? Otis Carter, Matthew Jones, to see a beautiful woman and to desire her to be their wife, to be their wife, for obvious reasons other than intellectual stimulation by her mind, there isn't a thing in the world wrong with that. And a thing in the world wrong with that. Friends, I've told my wife for 12 years, if it wasn't for that fact, it would still be Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. If you know what I mean. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 26. 
We read this verse this morning, but I want to come back to it. If you were sharp this morning, you saw that four-letter word that God uses, and He commends it. Verse 26, And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul admireth. No, for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. For oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. Notice the words that he's using, lust and desire. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. Notice, there is lawful lust and lawful desire. For instance, Brother Red has us over to his house. Red's got, Brother Red's got a nice house, doesn't he? We see that new house. We smell the new carpet. We see everything new, freshly painted. And some of us who live in unpainted barns, and I'm very thankful for my unpainted barn. Don't you? Some people think I'm unthankful when I say things like that, but listen, that unpainted barn gets to me. You say, well, why don't you paint it? Good point. <laughs> but anyway, we go over to Brother Red's and we smell and we look and we see this beautiful house. Is there a way in which you can desire and lust after that house and not sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you say no, then there isn't anything that you can do in this life as far as setting goals. Because what is a goal? Something you're desiring it, you're, you're desirous of. Here's where it becomes sin. If I go to Brother Red's house, and I envy him for it. It's over. I've sinned. If I go to Brother Red's house and I can't sleep at night because I'm consumed with having a house like that. You know what? Well, I'm going to show you some examples in Scripture about being consumed with a desire. And then third, if I thought of ways to bump Brother Red off and get myself in his will. You know, that's coveting unlawfully trying to get what is his to take it for myself. Now, there's three examples of how it would be sin. But outside those three, I want everyone to visit Brother Red's house. Do you know why? Maybe it'll help motivate you to set some goals for yourself. Goals like that are fine. Remember when I preached the sermon on Bible economics, I said, don't just read National Geographic to see how poor the people in India are. Why don't you read Forbes once in a while to see how rich the people in New York are? You know, you can compare yourself to some sluggard in India who, who won't eat the cow who's messing in his front yard because it might be his uncle. And you can say, well, I work harder than he does. But why don't you compare yourself to some investment banker in New York who works 85 hours a week? And that's sin, too. They're both sin in themselves. But to look at someone who has been diligent, what does it do? It provokes to emulation, and is that scriptural? You bet it is. If Brother Red's house provokes you to emulation as far as Brother Red's diligence for 20 years with the same company and saving some money to be able to do that, then the Lord be magnified. Brother Red, I'll try to leave you alone from here on out. Do you see Deuteronomy 14, 26, lust? and desire are lawful. Now look at 21.11, and let's move back to David Kruger. 
Deuteronomy chapter 21, and Otis Carter, and Matthew Jones, and Mike Fowler, and Sam Jones, and whoever else I've missed. Second Timothy, there in St. Louis. Verse 10. When thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest, now you're looking, here's the lust of the eyes, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire under her, it doesn't say admire, it says you have a desire under her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Do you know what that verse is saying? We'll move on then. Verse 12, then thou shalt bring her home, and he goes on to describe the procedure you were to follow to have that woman to be your wife. But notice the words it used. You look at a beautiful woman. You have a desire to have her as your wife. And it is not to sit and drink coffee in the morning. And that's obvious to nature. Listen, the Bible tells us to let nature teach us a few things. And this evening, I'm assuming that nature has taught most of you a few things on why you got married. What was the overriding, the driving force behind men getting married? The Bible tells us plainly what it is. There's a single man. He sees a single woman. You know why she's single? He just killed her husband. It's, this is warfare. Deuteronomy 21, he just killed her husband. She's got a, he's got a beautiful wife. He wants her to be his wife. He takes her home, and he's got a prescribed treatment to go through, and it's you'd really have to love her to go through this treatment. But uh, you can read that later on your own. But the point I'm after is this. For a single man to desire a single woman to be his wife for the purpose men have wives, there isn't a thing in the world wrong with that. And men, be honest with me, how many times did our consciences beat us? At times when we were told we could never look at an attractive girl with the second look. Remember? Listen, friends, what's this guy doing? He never takes his eyes off her. He sits at home for 30 days while her head's shaved off and while she's mourning, just waiting for the 31st day. Well, you Listen, be realistic with the Word of God. I'm dealing with consciences tonight who have suffered under burdens that they didn't have to suffer under. Let's walk the road of moderation between you can't ever look at an attractive woman and this world who thinks you can go do whatever you want. Those are both sin. Because right here we have the Word of God. It says desire and do. But that's lawful desire. Now, if David Kruger was to look at some man's wife and have that same, same desire, he's all of a sudden broken the law of God very plainly. In Genesis chapter 20, and I want you to look at this verse, Genesis chapter 20, Abimelech has Sarah in bed. Well, at least she, he has Sarah in his house. We don't know how close he got to her, except the Lord said that he kept Abimelech from touching her. And when Abimelech got a hold of Abraham, he chewed him out. He said, you almost got me killed, because I didn't know she was another man's wife. 
the Lord told Abimelech, I know that you did it in the integrity of your heart. You didn't know that she was another man's wife. And here is what Abimelech said to Sarah in verse 16. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. What does that verse mean? A husband is a covering of the eyes as far as any man looking on that woman to be his own wife. Abimelech took Sarah home to be his own wife, but he rebukes her. And Abimelech was a righteous man. He has conversations with God where God says, I know that you did it in the integrity of your heart. And Abimelech says to Sarah, listen, Abraham is a covering to your eyes. With those of your own servants, they don't look at you with any desire because you're another man's wife. And to those that are without, like myself, as soon as God revealed to me that Abraham was your husband, it's a covering to my eyes. Because to look at another woman with desire who's another man's wife is flat-out sin. That woman's husband is a covering of the eyes. Now, is it a covering of the eyes to look and admire an attractive woman? No, because we've got the other examples of Scripture. But is it a covering of the eyes to look and desire? Absolutely. That's the line right there. That is another man's piece of property. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to the women. That's how the Word of God puts it. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, number one. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, number two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's manservant, number three. A wife is the man's property. And you can't desire that property any more than you can desire his house. Notice what I said. Any more than you can desire his house. Can you desire his house? Yes, within proper means. But now can you desire another man's wife? How do you justify that? You say, well, I could wish that I was single and her husband was dead. Well, that's going beyond the scope of reality, and that's a level of desire that's going to vex your soul to be thinking that way. But no, you can desire a house without sinning, but when you covet a house whereby it would bring envy, whereby it would bring vexing to vex your soul, or whereby it would bring evil means to secure that house, you sin. And a husband is that safeguard. Any woman who's married, flat out, those thoughts are gone. They ought to be. Because a husband is the covering of the eyes to men. You know, Job said in Job 31 and verse 1, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Now this is the reverse. For a single man like David Kruger, he doesn't have to make a covenant with his eyes because he's entered into no covenant where he's made a covenant with his eyes. He can look at a single woman and desire her like Deuteronomy 21 teaches. I said a single woman. A woman that's married already has a cover over his eyes. He doesn't need to covenant about it. The cover is there because of the husband's existence. But then as soon as David gets married, he makes a covenant with his eyes not even to think upon the single woman, the maid. Notice the wording. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. 
Why should I therefore think upon a maid? That's a single woman. Do you see how it works? The husband is the covering of the eyes to any married woman. The marriage covenant is the covering of the eyes to any single woman. And isn't that the commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, what about fornication? What if David or any single man, and I'm not going to use you any further, David, what if any single man desires a little too much and desires an act of fornication? Friends, that's sin. The Bible, notice how the Bible covered itself in Deuteronomy 21.11. What was the desire? To have her to be your wife. It does not say to have her to shack up with you for a single night. It does not say to take her on a date. It says to have her to be your wife. You think beyond that and you're outside of Scripture. Now notice, I'm drawing the line. I'm cutting off certain thoughts for any of you who are perceptive and listening to what I'm saying, but at the same time I'm relieving your consciences from recognizing some woman that God has made beautiful and well-favored and admiring that and even commenting on it to your wife. And I bet I could ask almost any woman in here that your husband has done that from time to time. You've recognized an attractive woman and you've said so. Don't we say that about men? Now there goes an attractive looking man. What in the world is wrong with that? In Psalm 37, 4, the Lord says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires. Isn't that interesting? Desire is lawful. Desire can be lawful. Desire becomes unlawful when it violates the three things I've already told you. Envy, vexing, or sin itself, the act. Where you would do something Ill illegal, unlawful, to get the particular thing. Do we admire and even desire things like cars and houses and clothing? You women, don't you see someone wearing a very nice dress? Do you recognize that it's a nice dress? Do you admire the dress? Do you desire the dress? Do you say sometimes, I'd like to get a dress like that? Or you see a dress and you say, oh, if that was in a different color, boy, would I like a dress like that. Let's not use that. That's, that's a, some of you women don't want to admit that. How about walking through the mall and the mannequin has the dress on? I know you've got to admit this. And you see the mannequin with the dress on. Do you recognize the beautiful dress? Do you admire the beautiful dress? Do you desire the beautiful dress? And you pull out your pocketbook and you pay for it. Where is the sin? Where is the sin? No sin at all. But what if you couldn't afford that dress and you envied anyone who could afford a dress like that and it burned your soul up? What if it vexed you to get that dress and you tossed and turned on your bed at night and badgered your husband to give you an extra allowance? if you're under an allowance. That's sin. What if you tried to steal the dress? You went in and tried it on, put your dress over top of it, and walked out of the store. See where the sin is? Listen, David Kruger drives around with his automobile, and all he does is create desire. Isn't that right? Here I am back to David Kruger. Doesn't he? You drive around in a vet or some other nice car, and everywhere you go, there goes that second look of admire, admiration and desire. Is there anything wrong with desiring a vet, Brother Jeff Oley? See, now I know Brother Jeff Oley's deepest desires. Jeff Oley would like a vet, an older vet. I know that. 
He desires one. He admires them. And it's perfectly righteous. If we didn't have desires in life, what would we be aiming for? Listen, Paul said covet earnestly the best gifts. I mean, we know there's some things we should covet. And these things that God has given us richly to enjoy, we can admire them and we can desire them. Furniture. We go into someone's house, we see a piece of furniture. We recognize that it's a nice piece of furniture. Will you allow that? Do you admire the nice piece of furniture? Do you desire to have a house as well decorated as the house that you might be in? We do that all the time, don't we? Do you lay at home and toss and turn your bed with that vexing your soul? I hope not. You've sinned. It's gone too far. That's controlling you instead of you controlling it. Do you envy the person who's got that home? That's sin. Envy is a product of devilish deception. James chapter 3. Are you thinking about ways to steal or get that furniture or other decorator items some unlawful way? There's the sin. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. You say, this doesn't have much to do with the book of Esther. Well, it's all there in verse 11. Did, Ahar did Ahasuerus do something terribly wicked when he asked Vashti to come and show off her royal crown and beauty before the princes of the kingdom of Persia? 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. And it came to pass after this that Absalom the son of David had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon the son of David loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Now here is unlawful desire. This unlawful desire was considering acts of fornication. But he felt that it was hard to do that to her because he was going to humble her, and losing virginity was a great loss, back in these days anyway, and I pray to God it's a great loss for any woman in this congregation who's yet single. But notice that he fell sick for his sister because he was so vexed with this desire and so-called love he had for her. That is out. That is it controlling you. All things are lawful for me, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And when you're getting sick from something, you are under its power. You're a slave to it, and I can tell you that all you need is circumstances, and you'll sin. Now, I'm talking about your innermost consciences. All of you know where you have weaknesses with desire. Whatever that might be, you cannot allow a desire to creep into your life where it begins to vex you like this. I'll tell you the story of the other reference I was going to turn you to is Joshua chapter 7 when Achan went in and looked at the good Babylonian garment and the wedge of gold and silver, and he took it. Now notice, he looked, he recognized beauty and value, he admired, he desired, it goes in a, doesn't it go in a uh, process? He desired lawfully, and then he desired unlawfully. 
And the unlawful desire was when Joshua had said, you can't touch the things of the city of Jericho. And he took it anyway. And isn't that what James chapter 1 tells us about lust? When it hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Look over with me at James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now there's the order. Lust, enticement, sin, death. There's the order. Now we've already read that there's lawful lust. There are things you can lust after that are lawfully yours to have for the purchase, for instance. But you can lust after even those lawful things to such a degree that you're enticed with them where it is now controlling you, that thing, and you've got to have it one way or another. And when you reach that stage of enticement, we're talking about unlawful enticement here. It's, it conceives sin. The next stage is the fact that it conceives the act. You lust after it. It, 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 it draws you into an enticing relationship where it's got you loving it. It's got you wrapped around its little finger, as you might say, and it's controlling you. The next step is sin. That's the order. But now things like another man's wife, Listen, there's no place for any lust. That's unlawful lust in the first degree. I'm not talking about admiration and recognition. I'm talking about desire. Because remember, her husband is a covering of your eyes. And remember, you've made a covenant with your eyes also. That's out. But things like, for instance, the Corvette that I mentioned earlier. You look at it, you desire it, that's lust. Lust is desire. That's what it means. But you're not enticed by it. It doesn't have you under its control. Perfectly lawful. If it gets you under its control where it brings you into an enticing relationship and seduces you where you've got to have it, the next act is you're going to do something unlawful to get it. And that unlawful act to get it may be as innocent as not saving and paying the Lord first to raise the money to buy it. You know, let's not be so easy on all of you just to think about stealing David Kruger's Corvette. I don't think most of you would do that. But could we sacrifice savings? Could we sacrifice paying the Lord first in order to purchase things that have enticed us? Still a sin, just as bad as theft. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus said, and these words have haunted men since Jesus spoke them, whosoever looketh, 28, Jesus said, whoso looketh on a woman, there's looking. Does he condemn the looking? He's going to modify the looking. Whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her. There is that unlawful desire. That's the coveting spoken of in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. 
There's that unlawful desire because she's a married woman and you're a married man. That's who he's speaking to. That's why he uses the word adultery. Whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her, to desire another man's wife, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. See, that's what he was thinking. It's that desire that's totally unlawful. But the point I'm making is to look at a woman and recognize that she's attractive and to admire her attractiveness is not sin. The Bible does that. I mean, read the book of Song of Solomon. It describes a beautiful woman that's rather graphic in detail about her beauty. But there's nothing sinful about that fact. Look at Job 31. I've already commented on one verse in Job. And that's the first verse of chapter 31, but there's another verse where I want to describe the difference between recognizing a woman who's intelligent, recognizing a woman who's a good professional woman, recognizing a woman who's a good housekeeper, and recognizing a woman who's attractive. There's no difference among those things except if you've got a weakness for women in general or for that particular woman, that you know you've had conscience problems with in the past, you know what? You want to even eliminate the admiration because you're playing with something too dangerous to play with. And how, what's my Bible basis for that? Flee also youthful lusts. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Don't make any provision. I mean, sometimes in certain office situations, you might have to ask for a transfer, if you're honest. Job 31 and verse 1, Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Now that's single women. And then in verse 9, he says, If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door. Now notice how what he's describing here. He's not describing recognizing an attractive woman and simply admiring. He's talking about his heart being deceived. You know what that is? That is enticement from James chapter 1. That's being enticed so that he would lie wait at his neighbor's door. Now, that's a lot further than recognizing an attractive woman. Heart adultery, let me put it this way, heart adultery is more than admiring and a second look. Nothing in the world wrong with a second look. Wow, we second look everything. As all the things in our society flash by us, we always have to stop and look at what we want to see, don't you? You do that with anything. There's nothing wrong with the second look, but I, listen, I've heard more sermons, I've heard more sermons that have taught me you can't, second look is the sin than any sermon I've ever heard any other way. The second look's the sin. We second look at everything. Look at A second look can go this far. Don't you husbands and wives talk about other people in the congregation, about their possessions, about their persons? Don't you ever recognize things about them? That person is gifted in this area. That person has attractive hair. And you mention it. That's more than a second look. That's a discussion about the fact. There's no sin in that. Heart adultery is more than that. But it's less than the act. 
It is so easy for a Pharisee to think that because he hasn't committed the actual act, or he hasn't really laid out the plans yet for the act, he hasn't committed the sin. But if his heart is enticed, where he's about to conceive a plan for sin, he is there with heart adultery. He's looked on a woman to lust after her. Godly men are going to flee any woman or any habit of admiring that leads to sin. There is a place for admiration of a woman's attractiveness. Ahasuerus was doing nothing unlawful in Esther chapter 1 when he called for Esther to come forth and add one more element of the glory of the Persian kingdom to these princes who were there witnessing it. Now let's come back to Esther chapter 1. I hope that in some way has been helpful so that your consciences do not condemn you, men, when you recognize and admire a woman who's attractive. There's no sin in that act. Single or married. I mean, we do that with all other types of possessions, too. I have not in any way lessened the seriousness, though, of heart adultery as Jesus Christ condemns it and unlawfully looking on a woman to desire another man's wife. That is his property. The safest thing to do for you to whip that desire is to think about the man. Think about the man and ask yourself, do you love that man? And are you glad he has such an attractive wife? And are you thankful to God for that man? And if you'll do that, if you'll think about the man like the man Abraham, if Abimelech would have known, it's a covering to the eyes. You say, hey, that man's a good man. That man deserves the best. He's got a terrific-looking wife. I'm thrilled for him. May the Lord be magnified. And you know what that does? If you're a child of God, it puts a covering right over your eyes because you're thinking of your brother. That's his property. And while you'd no more steal his car, you better not be thinking a thing about taking his wife. That's his property. Esther chapter 1 and verse 12, But the king Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. A chamberlain, by the way, is someone who keeps the chamber, domestic servants, usually eunuchs. Listen, kings didn't want men messing around with their wives, so they had eunuchs perform roles like this. And you can read about them in history books. It's just a very wise and prudent thing for kings to do who had attractive wives, but yet who wanted men to wait on them to perform services around the family. You just made them eunuchs, and you were safe. You didn't need insurance that way. That was your guarantee. But anyway, that's, that's what a chamberlain is. It's someone who keeps the chamber. The chamber, the bed, the family, the bedroom, the domestic duties. So he sends seven... Because you notice there's, a, there's groups of seven throughout the book of Esther. We're going to hit seven a number of times. I guess Persia was really taken with the number seven. He has seven chamberlains, and he's going to have seven wise men in just a few verses. Two things from verse 12. First of all, Queen Vashti refused to come. And second of all, King Ahasuerus was very wroth 
and his anger burned in him. Let's deal with the easiest one first, and that's King Ahasuerus was very wroth and his anger burned in him. Is that sin? No. Did God's anger ever burn very hot? How many times? Would be the better question. Throughout the Word of God, it says God's anger burned, waxed very hot against Moses, against Aaron, against Solomon, against all sorts of the kings and judges of Israel. God has righteous anger. And when a wife refuses to obey, there's nothing wrong in the world with some anger on the part of her husband. That is natural. And we're going to see that very plainly in a verse that's coming up. It's verse 18, but we'll be there in a minute. It is very natural for a husband or anyone in authority to be angry when their rules or their authority is despised by those under that authority. Nothing wrong with his anger. What about Queen Vashti not coming before the, the king? You know, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Do you know what the verse doesn't say? But means. The heart of the queen is in the Lord's hand as the rivers of water, and he turneth it whithersoever he will also. Now the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh followed the Israelites into the Red Sea. And the Lord hardened the heart of Vashti that she refused to obey King Ahasuerus so that King Ahasuerus could get rid of the woman to make way for Esther. God's providential dealings. You say, how do you know that happened? Because the Bible says he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's why. She refused because God wanted her to refuse. That was his will for this particular occurrence. You can read events in the Bible like the sons of Eli. Now, Eli had two sons who were most wicked men. I mean, you know what they were doing. They were stealing the sacrifices of the Israelites who came to offer, and they were committing adultery with the women who came to offer sacrifice at the tabernacle in 1 Samuel, about chapter 3. And Eli wasn't a very good father, and he told his sons they ought not to do it, but he didn't restrain them. And they didn't listen to their father's advice. Do you know why? Why didn't they obey their father's advice? It tells us, because the Lord would slay them. Their rebellion was from the Lord. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, who had the opportunity to have all twelve tribes. Some old wise counselors told him, if you'll reduce taxes, all 12 tribes will jump in behind you. He says, I want to raise taxes instead. They said, you're going to lose them. Why did he follow the advice of the younger counselors and raise taxes and threaten the people with higher taxes and lose 10 tribes? Because the matter was from the Lord as judgment upon Solomon to give 10 tribes to Jeroboam. So you can see those examples throughout the Word of God. When someone disobeys and does something foolish, you don't have to look any farther than God is directing events. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. I mean, Vashti may have had all the plans in the world on how to be a good queen, but in this particular case, her steps were directed to disobey on this one point, and that was enough for King Ahasuerus to divorce her. Let me deal briefly 
with this totally unacceptable behavior on the part of a woman. Because we have here in Esther chapter 1, the only chapter in the Bible that specifically goes after the women's liberation movement, as we're going to read in a few verses. These seven wise men that King Ahasuerus had around him were most intelligent as they thought of the ramifications of her rebellion. Do you know the two reasons why women are to obey and reverence and call their husbands Lord? Why? What are the two reasons? Number one, Adam was first formed, then Eve. Do you know what that means? 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman, and not both of them for each other. The woman was made for the man. The woman's purpose in this universe is to serve a man, her husband. That is her purpose in this universe. Her purpose is not individual pleasure. Her purpose is not a partnership in marriage. Her purpose is not children. Her purpose is to be in help, meet, fit, appropriate, suitable, proper for the man. And why? That's the way God made man. He made Adam first and then Eve when he saw that Adam needed a helper. That is a woman's role in this world. And the sooner you accept that role and love that role and realize benefits will come from following that role, the happier you'll be. See, Oliver North knows his role. Lieutenant colonels are to be in subjection and obey and reverence and call them Lord, who are their commander-in-chiefs. Employees know that the chairman of the board is generally when he's not breaking the law, and I have to say that for personal reasons, that the chairman of the board generally is to be reverenced and obeyed and submitted to and basically called Lord by your actions. And we do that as men, most cases. We do it before our governments. Children do that with their parents, and the rule is no different for wives. That's the way God ordained it in the beginning, before there was any sin. Adam was first formed, then Eve. It didn't take sin for the woman to be in subjection to the man. It was just aggravated after that, because reason number two is what? She was deceived in the transgression, and that's why she's under authority. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, so that we can see Paul carefully in two verses, give the two reasons why women are to be in subjection to their husbands. There is no such thing as a partnership. There isn't anything close to it in the Word of God. No better could an army get along if they, were, if they all had chiefs than a household can get along if they're both in control or they're trying to manage by consensus. Listen, consensus management stinks. Democracy stinks. We need a dictator in this nation, like a king. God never believed in a democracy. Democracy is every man doing what's right in his own eyes or following mob rule. God had kings and queens, monarchies, or judges, men like Moses, men like Samuel. They didn't ask advice. They executed orders. Where did they get their orders? From God. Democracy does not work. 
Our nation's proof of that. Look at our democracy. All we have in Washington are those who say they're representing the rights of all the people. They're representing the rights of special interest groups. That's what we have in this nation, is a group of men who sit around and try to figure out how they can satisfy all special interest groups. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with subjection most of the time, except when her husband will allow her to be his equal. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Here are the two reasons. Four, Adam was first formed, then Eve. Second reason, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The woman showed her weakness in the Garden of Eden, and she showed it for all time to come. And it doesn't matter how intelligent a woman is since then, God still remembers, and he tells men to remember, she's easily deceived. And he goes on to say in 1 Peter 3, 7, that's, why the, that's one of the reasons they're the weaker vessel. That's why we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that false religion, who does it lead captive? Silly women. Women are easily deceived by false religion. Go, go to a Catholic church. Take a ratio in there of male and female people sitting in the congregation waiting to take mass, thinking that a cracker is going to become God. It's a woman's religion. Go look at Jimmy and Tammy Baker and see who supports them and see what the ratio is between men and women. Go read the primitive Baptist newspapers and see who writes in, men or women. Women are deceived by false religion. Go to most churches, the women will outnumber the men. Do you know why? Well, the Bible says false religion will attract the women more than the men because the women are more easily deceived. For those two reasons, her behavior was totally unacceptable, both to God and Scripture and to the laws of nature. Nature itself teaches us that women are to be in subjection because nature itself teaches us that they're weaker in every category. You know, I get sick and tired of hearing about women are weaker physically but stronger mentally. Dream on. You know, or stronger emotionally. Dream on. Give me one category in which they're stronger. You say, well, they love their children more. Listen, David said that his relationship with Jonathan exceeded the love of women. Solomon said that he had a thousand wives and he hadn't found a good one yet, but that if he had tried a thousand men, he would have found a good one. There are relationships that men can have together that are superior to what you can have with a woman. I'm not saying that I'm quoting the Word of God. Yeah, I'm saying it too. We have the mind of Christ, don't we? That's what the Bible says. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we ought to look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know I preached on the book of Ruth recently, and now here we are going over the same material, and you poor women are going to feel battered and abused, and you're going to be calling the Society for Abused Women when you get out of here. I hope not. I love you women who love the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's so much material here, but let's read just a few verses. Verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now there's an order. God, Christ, man, and the woman. 
the woman reports to the man, she does not report to Christ until, until the man requires something of her that Christ wouldn't. And then I've taught you plenty on that. I read down in verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. The man is the image of God. The woman is not the image of God. The man is the image of God. Now, in what way is the man the image of God more than the woman's the image of God? It's a word that starts with A. It ends with Y. Authority. God. Does God have authority? Is God in subjection to anyone? No. The man is in authority. In that way, he is in the image of God in a way the woman is not. He's the glory of God because he's in authority. God loves authority. Have I made that point clear in my ministry? God loves authority. I don't care if it's me under that authority or a woman under that authority or my children under my authority. God loves it because God is all authority. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And you know what? A husband ought to rule the same way. What are you doing? Listen, someone in authority doesn't have the right to ask why. Any woman who thinks she has the right to ask why thinks you're equal. What is authority all about? It's to make decisions when there may not be an explanation of why. That's what authority requires. Do it. Listen, when, you're, when your sergeant tells infantrymen to hit the hill and take the machine gun nest, why? Listen, what would he do to the man? They've shot him before. They've shot him before, friends. They've shot the first infantryman to balk. And you know what the rest do? They take the machine gun nest. And you know what Ahasuerus did? He shot her too. And the rest took the machine gun nest. 1 Corinthians 11. This, ver this seventh verse is important. For as much as he, not they, he is the image and glory of God because he is the figure of authority. But the woman is the glory of the man. Now do we men glory in our wives? Yes, indeed. For whole reasons very different from authority, don't we? Aren't they special creatures that God has created? Yes, but we certainly don't respect them for their authority. We respect them for a whole lot of other things that God has given them. They're the glory of the man, but not of God. The man is the glory of God. Verse 8, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Where did the woman come from? She came from a rib out of the side of Adam. Neither was the man created for the woman but the woman for the man. You know, Paul wouldn't be very popular today, would he? Is he laying it out right here, plainly? Going to be about as popular as I am. And I pray to God we have some women show up next Sunday. Verse 10, For this cause ought the women to have power on her head because of the angels. I've preached on angels before. There are angels in this room right now looking at the length of hair on women and making a judgment. Is that woman living up to the glory of the man and is that woman making her husband the glory and image of God? The long hair on a woman's head says, My husband is in authority. He is in the image and glory of God, and I'm his glory. 
The longer the hair, the better. You say, how do you know that? Because it says long hair. You say, well, my hair doesn't grow very long. Well, just let it grow. God knows that. But you know what I'm, sermon I'm referring to? It's the one I preached about four weeks ago when I went to St. Louis on those people who try to get as close to the line as they can. That's not a godly attitude. A godly attitude is to make sure it's long. If there's doubt, don't. Satisfy any benefit of the doubt. Let the hair grow. It's a glory to the woman in verse 15. You know, Peter taught in 1 Peter chapter 3 that women ought to call their husbands Lord and to, sub to submit to them with all fear and gravity except fear that would result in amazement. And I've been over that before, and I'm not even going to deal with that point. In our society, we don't need to deal with fear unto amazement most times. We need to deal with fear. There's not enough. But do you know what I'm saying this evening? And women, I love every woman. I love women. And all of you women should know that if you've ever talked to me. And here I go again, defending myself with you. But I want you to believe that I'm fair. And I've submitted to men, and I continue to submit to men in our government. And I respect a man like Oliver North, who does at least, who did at least as much as I ever expect from you to do. But men do it. Can't you look at that fact and realize what is required of you by the Word of God is not anything unusual, but what we require of our children? what are required of citizens of a nation, what are required of members of a church, what are required of servants of an employee, an employer, the master. We all do it. Does that help you women at all accept the fact of your submission? I hope it does. Listen, lieutenant colonels and commanders in chiefs are not created equal. If you were to ask Oliver North if he thought he was the equal of his commander-in-chief, I don't even need to ask him. I know what he'd say. No, sir. No, sir. Of course not. Why do you think he's commander-in-chief? He's proved he's superior to the rest. You say, well, there's exceptions to that. Exceptions are meaningless. The rule is the commander-in-chief is there because he was a better lieutenant colonel than any other lieutenant colonel had ever been. That's why he's commander-in-chief. And God made men, and then he created the woman to be the man's helper. And Esther did something here that was totally contrary to God's law. God himself, God himself and the king of Persia. What did Bathsheba call David when David was on his deathbed? Now, that's not the most impressive figure of a man when you're laying on your deathbed and you can't even keep your body warm, the book tells us. What did Bathsheba call my Lord? You say, well, he was king. Listen, he was her husband. And he had already promised that her son would be the next king. But she's still in there. Was she standing? Was she sitting back in an easy chair with her legs crossed chatting with him? Or was she on the face groveling beside his bed? That's what the Word of God says about the woman Bathsheba and David. In 
In Esther chapter 1, we have Vashti refusing to obey King Ahasuerus. He's angry. His anger burns within him. He's very wroth when she does not do that. In verses 13 through 22, he appeals to seven of his wise men. And here is character reference number two for King Ahasuerus. Number one was the fact that he had a law that no man would be compelled to drink. Number two is in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all them that knew, toward all that knew law and judgment. When it says that someone knows the times in the Bible, that is a metonym of the adjunct. That is a word substituted for things that occur in time. Someone that knows the times knows what is the appropriate behavior for a given time. Can I prove that? You say, I've never heard of a metonym of the adjunct. Well, look at First Chronicles 12:32, and let's let the Word of God draw a comparison for you so that you can know what it means when it says men know the times. I'll, I'll read it to you if you're not there. First Chronicles 12:32, And the children of Issachar which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. See? There it's defined. When you understand the times, you know what a person ought to do given certain circumstances at a given time. You can come over to Daniel chapter 7 where it talks about the little horn of Daniel, the, the papacy, where it says that he will think to change times and laws see what appropriate behavior is for a given time or given circumstances, the papacy is going to corrupt. He'll think to change times. Now, he can't change time, can he? Time continues to march on whether the Pope's around or not. That is a figure of speech. And here in Esther chapter 1, we have the king, and it says his manner was what? What was the manner of King Ahasuerus in that 13th verse? to respect and seek out the judgment of those who knew the times. For so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. What was the king's manner? Never to make a decision without seeking safety in a multitude of counselors. Here he was, burning angry. Now would you look for counsel, or would you go wring the woman's neck? Would you march in there yourself and take her by the nape of the neck and say, listen, sweetie, what would you do? Look at this. Isn't this great? This man, although he's burning angry, he stops and he asks his seven wise counselors that he has right there who know law and who know judgment, what should I do next? And verses 13 through 22 describe what takes place, but we'll have to deal with that next week three things I've wanted you to get practically, practically from Esther chapter 1. First, being merry with alcoholic beverages is by God's design within the limitations that Scripture imposes. Number two, admiring beautiful things and even beautiful women without lusting after them, and I've given all the limitations on that and the allowances, is not sin but a recognition of something God has created just like the Holy Spirit recognizes it in Holy Scripture. And third, 
that women again have to maintain in our society in particular a careful attitude submissive to the Word of God so that you're not corrupted by the women who are out there who want you to lose your fear of your husbands. That fear of a husband is an ungodly thing and an unnecessary thing in the home when the Word of God establishes that very plainly. The, the doctrinal issue that I've wanted you to learn from Esther chapter 1, and it's there plainly, is the way that God is turning circumstances to open up a throne. It's the throne to the left of the king of Persia, and it's just about to be made very open in verses 13 through 22 when King Ahasuerus divorces Vashti, which makes the way for Esther to come in and save her people. But the hand of God is at work already in chapter 1. And we can see that there's already some influence in the life of Ahasuerus. He's a wise man, isn't he? Whether that's just natural wisdom, he appeals to counselors, and he doesn't compel to drink. We've seen a wise king there. And what we've seen so far, we can't condemn him, but we'll try to exonerate him, and I believe we can, by using the rest of the Word of God. I hope it's been helpful to you let us glory in authority. Let us be submissive. Wherever you are called to be submissive, make sure you are exemplary. You men are the image and the glory of God. Do you understand that statement? You give God glory. You are God's image. Do you know how you can defile that image and detract from that glory? By not ruling your homes well. I didn't say hard. I said well. There you can be the true image and glory of God. And you women, by submitting, you can fulfill your role that God has designed for you and be the glory of your husbands. And if you don't like that, most of you do. That's what God has designed for you. Oliver North took pride and pleasure in being the glory of his commander-in-chief. And wouldn't a lieutenant colonel who spoke that way be the glory of the commander-in-chief? I mean, you know Ronald Reagan by that stage was watching the hearings and he told the public that. Do you know what you'd be feeling when you heard a lieutenant colonel speak that way? The same way a husband feels when he hears his wife call him Lord or behave in a way according to that name. May the Lord bless us to have the proper authority in our homes, our lives, our church, and our nation, and he'll bless it. Amen.